Hey everybody, it's Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, February 28th, 2021. Welcome to The Way Radio Live. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, just like every week, if you have any trouble hearing or seeing, uh, please comment and I'll do what I can to fix the problem. I only see comments though if you're watching on Facebook through the church page, the, the Way Ministry or the Way R12 Tree page. I don't see the comments on my personal page until after the broadcast. Uh, so let's just get into today's sermon. It is entitled The Fragrance of Worship. It's based on John 12 verses 1 through 11. And uh, John is one of my favorite books in scripture. I absolutely love it. Uh, I've preached through the whole book. I spent about three and a half years uh, preaching through it. And I just like going back to it once in a while because it is such a beautiful book because uh, Christ so much throughout the book of John shares about who he is, why he came, about his divinity, the Trinity, uh, so many uh, just beautiful Christian doctrines that we hear conveyed from the mouth of Christ in the book of John. So that's one of the reasons that I uh, I love it so much and I just uh Love preaching through it. So let's just dive in. Uh, John 12, verses 1 through 11, the fragrance of worship. Let's pray and we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that we're able to gather here uh, each Sunday online for uh, people from uh, different parts of the world. And Lord, I just ask that you would bless this message today, that we would learn of you, uh, that you'd be honored and glorified through it, that your name would be lifted up and that we would all be blessed with a greater understanding of your word and your truth, and that we would learn more of what it is uh, to truly worship and honor you <clears throat> in our daily lives and with all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the fragrance of worship, John 12, 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, I'd recommend turning to John 12. And like I've said before, I also think it's a good idea to have a journal. And as you listen to the sermons, take notes, write things down. If you have questions, uh, write those down and you can email me uh, after the sermon. And I'd be glad to answer any questions that you might have. John 12 verses 1 through 11. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing 
in Jesus. Um, I think one of the areas that is neglected, sadly, is understanding what it is to truly worship Christ and to do it from uh, the heart and to do it for the right reasons. So um, I really want to delve into that today, and I hope this message is a blessing to all that hear it. Um, before I get into it, I just wanted to preface it with a quote from Matthew Henry's commentary on John chapter 12. And at the beginning of that, in his introduction to his commentary on John chapter 12, Matthew Henry says, Let us see what honors were heaped on the head of the Lord Jesus, even in the depths of his humiliation. Mary did him honor by anointing his feet at the supper in Bethany. The common people did him honor with their acclamations of joy when he rode in triumph into Jerusalem. The Greeks did him honor by inquiring after him with a longing desire to see him. God the Father did him honor by a voice from heaven. He had honor done him by the Old Testament prophets. He had honor done him by some of the chief rulers, though they had no courage to own it. He claimed honor to himself by asserting his divine mission. So all through the book of John, we see honor bestowed on Christ the Savior from different viewpoints, from different people, and in different ways. And what we learn from that is there are so many ways that we can honor Christ in our daily walk with him. So if we look at John 12, verses 1 through 11, starting in verse 1, I'll pull it up on the screen here. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So since Lazarus' resurrection, what I want you to understand is the Jewish leaders were openly looking for Jesus in order to arrest and to kill him. They had been seeking to stop Jesus from preaching. From the beginning of his ministry, really, Satan had tried to stop Christ from existing from the time of his birth. So Satan was always striving to stop the coming Messiah. And then when Christ was incarnated in the flesh, Satan did the best he could by even killing all the young boys in an effort to stop the Messiah from growing to maturity. But then when he enters ministry, especially what we see throughout the book of John is these constant attacks and confrontations with the Pharisees where they are trying to catch Christ in something that's wrong, something that might be a lie, something that's false or con contradicts the, the Torah and the law of Moses. And towards the end of his ministry, the Pharisees became extremely frustrated because they were unable to catch Christ in any error. Every time they tried to confront him or to trick him into doing something wrong, it ended up coming back on them, and they were the ones that looked foolish and walked away with their heads down. But since Lazarus's resurrection, now they were pretty much outwardly and blatantly trying to destroy Christ and to kill him because Lazarus's resurrection was so profound, and the news of it had spread like wildfire through the area in such a way that they knew they had to eliminate Christ because what he was doing was beyond anything they had ever encountered before. And he was a direct threat to their corruption and to the, I guess you could say, the, the religious empire that they had set up uh, that was false 
And so he was a direct threat to them. So since Lazarus's resurrection, the Jewish leaders were openly looking for Jesus in order to arrest and kill him. I'll give you an example of that. If we look at the previous chapter, John 11, 53, 53 through 57 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus was a wanted man, and the Pharisees were painting him as a criminal at this time. But in spite of that, Jesus comes back to Bethany, exposing himself to those who would arrest and kill him. So even though this great threat was hanging over his head, he came back to that area in spite of the danger that was represented to him there. He put himself within their reach. Why? Because his hour had finally come. And this is one of the beautiful ways in which we can look at Christ's ministry and his time that he spent among us in the flesh. He put himself within their reach when his hour had finally come. Let's look at John 17 verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So he speaks about that hour that he had been waiting for had finally come. And what we learn from this is that all through Christ's ministry, he was in control. All was ordained by and according to the Father's will. Look at John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We have to understand that Christ's ministry, his arrest, his fraudulent trial, his torture at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership, his suffering, his crucifixion, his suffering, and his death were all according to God's will. And Christ could have stopped it in an instant if he so wanted to. But he stayed in line with the will of the Father and it carried through with the purpose for which he came, and that purpose was to die for our sins, that we might be saved through faith in his name. So you very, John 10, 17 through 18 is something very important for Christians, especially new Christians, to study, to understand the profound faith that Christ exhibited in carrying through with something that was so horrific for him, only because he loved us, and it was because of the Father's will. What a powerful thing for us to consider. Let's look at John 12, too. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
So Lazarus is there with Mary and Martha, his sisters. Lazarus had earlier been raised from the dead. So many of the people at this banquet, at this dinner, had seen Lazarus grow ill, die because of his illness, and then Christ came to town a few days later and raised him from the dead. And now they are sitting and having dinner together. But what this meal represents is it's a farewell visit with those whom the Lord loved before he went to the cross. I believe he had a very close relationship with this family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very close friends of his. He had a very close relationship with them, and he was having a meal with them that was a farewell meal before he went to his crucifixion. But also consider it in this context, Lazarus, representing the dead sinner, raised to life in Jesus Christ, dines with him, communes with him, and worships him. Lazarus represents every born-again, regenerated believer. And if we see ourselves in Lazarus, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Christ said to us, rise and come forth. And we walk out of that tomb of death that we were trapped in because of our sin and trespasses. Lazarus prefigures every true Christian believer. He represents the dead sinner raised to life in Jesus Christ. And here he is dining with him, communing with him, and he's worshiping him. This is a dinner that paints a picture of true Christian fellowship. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 and Revelation 3:20. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even now, while we are still in the flesh and we are not with the Lord face to face in his kingdom, yet we still fellowship with him, commune with him, and we dine with him. Every time that we dive into his word and we start striving to know more of him by feeding on his word, we are dining with him. And this dinner prefigures that. So it prefigures the dining that we spend with the Lord now in fellowship and communion with him and the dining that we will spend with him in eternity at the end of the age. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We are blessed with that now and we are blessed with that in eternity with the Lord. That is a promise that we have. Now, something else I want you to look at, and this has to do with the topic of the sermon. Previously, serving had distracted Martha from the Lord. If you go to Luke 10, 38 through 42, we read that it, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So you can picture this. He's in the house. Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet, absorbed in what he's teaching, communing with him, fellowshipping with him. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So in this earlier episode, when Jesus had visited this home, we saw Martha make the error 
of being so focused on serving that she was passing up one of the greatest opportunities in human history to sit at the feet of God and hear him speak and teach, to be able to commune with her creator because she was distracted because she felt like she needed to be busy with serving. Mary made the proper choice. So, so this happened earlier, but now look at that and contrast it with what we read here. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with reclining with him at table. Here, Martha is serving, but she's serving in worship with her eyes and ears to the Lord. So she's still serving, but now we see that change of heart that I'm talking about. We see her doing things from a proper perspective of worship. And what we learn from this is that service and ministry should be worship of the Lord, never a distraction from the Lord. And this is a huge thing that we've got to understand, especially in the age in which we live. Because of social media, because of um, the church taking on so much of the world and appearing to be so worldly, many, many Christian people become obsessed with ministry and they do it and it becomes a hindrance and a detriment to their walk with Christ. Or they come into Christianity seeking to engage in ministry because they see that the notoriety and the fame that can be attached to that ministry and they've never even come to know Christ. So serving is very important, but it needs to be done for the right reasons. It needs to be that living water that pours out of us because of our relationship with Christ and into the world around us. Ministry should flow from Christ into us and out into the world. If ministry starts affecting your walk with Christ, you need to make some big changes. And I speak from experience in this. I've made this mistake a few different times in my life where I've become too concerned with ministry and not concerned enough with my personal walk with Christ. And I've had to step away from things, slow down a little bit, simplify and get refocused on my personal walk with Christ. Because if that is hindered or that suffers, ministry will become off base, worthless, and will be off the narrow path that it's supposed to follow. So service and ministry should be worship of the Lord, never a distraction from the Lord. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I believe that Martha learned this lesson from the time of that first visit we read about to this visit. She was serving, but from a proper frame of mind, frame of spirit, and from a pop proper place in her heart. Let's look at verse 3. John 12, 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the same Mary that was in Simon's house in Luke 7, I believe, is the Mary that we're learning of here. Because we read of a very similar instance when Jesus was visiting Simon the Zealot and this woman that it speaks of washed the Lord's feet with her hair and her tears. 
And I believe it's the same Mary. So she's had these previous experiences with the Lord as well. Not everyone agrees with that. Some believe it's two different Marys. I, I believe it's the same one, but it's not something we need to argue about. But what I, the point I want to make here, because we're studying the topic of worship, is that Mary's offering is the best of what she has. That's what this is symbolizing. She wiped his feet with her hair. And she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume of that ointment. That's why the title of the sermon today is The Fragrance of Worship. Her worship, because it was true, because it was pure, because it was pleasing to the Lord, filled the area around her with the fragrance of that worship. That's what we need to strive to emulate as Christian believers, that our worship of the Lord that fragrance would fill our lives, would bless us, and it would and, and it would be a fragrance that carried out into the world around us. You see? So Mary's offering is the best of what she has. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume of the worship that the perfume represents. Look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself self up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, something I want you to think about here is quite often, and I've talked about this before, is modern Christians struggle with fruitful, heartfelt, passionate, joyful prayer. It's one of the most common problems that I hear people talk about. They struggle in finding time to pray, in praying without distraction, in turning their minds off and meditating on the Lord in prayer because of the busyness and really the obnoxious busyness of our world. One of the things that I think really helps us in prayer is if we look at our prayers as a fragrant offering in worship to the Lord. And there are other places in Scripture, I, I, I forgot to write down the verses, where it says our prayers are like incense going up to the Lord. It even says in Revelation that the, that the, the angels add incense to the prayers of the saints. You see? So something really important to think about if you're struggling in prayer. Visualize your prayers as being a fragrant offering in worship to the Lord. Now, I want you to think of that verse, John 12, 3. Mary, therefore, took a a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now contrast that with someone who's walking with Christ, has witnessed his ministry for probably three years, has witnessed his miracles, was there, I assume, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, had listened to Christ proclaim the gospel, but his heart was not even close to being in the right place. Let's look at verses four through six. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas's love was for the money bag, and so the money bag led to his demise. Judas worshipped money. He didn't worship Christ, and money led, helped lead 
to his demise. Look at Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And then Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So what we learn here is Judas didn't realize the extreme consequences of his betrayal. He didn't realize until it was too late what cost there was in betraying Christ and in denying Christ. And you got to ask yourself, are you going to make that mistake? Are you worshiping for the right reasons? That's a very important question in this age in which we live. Are you supposedly worshiping or serving the Lord because you love him and your worship is pouring forth from your heart or because you've seen what the world can give you through worldly ministry? Very important thing to consider. Very important thing to consider. And the, the, the warning that I would give people at this point is beware what or who you worship. Beware what or who you worship. Look at Romans 1, 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you want to be in that category? So depraved that God has given you up to a debased mind? And left hopelessly on the road to condemnation? Or do you want to worship the Lord as he is to be worshipped? Very important to ask yourself these questions. The reason this message is so important is because there will be increasing pressure. And in America, it is increasing daily to turn from truly worshipping Christ to either worshipping a false Christ that the, world can, that the world can accept that doesn't threaten their evil, sinister plans, or to make the decision to adhere to Christ and to cling to him regardless of what the world pressures you into doing or tries to pressure you into doing. That's why this is a very, very important message for us to hear today. And actually, I missed a part of that verse. Uh, ruthless. No, I guess, yeah, I finished it. I'm sorry. But notice the stark contrast between the adoring worship of Mary and the selfish worldliness of Judas. And we see this all the time. Again, this is one of these big problems we have with making Christian ministers, pastors, whatever, theologians, apologists, into superstars. Because if they are not true in what they're doing, it has a horrific ripple effect into the so-called Christian community. And we see this constantly 
it's one of the reasons that when you know people ask me, do you read this guy or listen to this guy or this guy? I almost invariably say no. Most of the, the Christian writers that I read are dead. The two that I focus on the most are Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s and Augustine from the beginning, very early church, the three and four hundreds. Because they've already lived their lives, they've towed the line, they've stayed on the narrow path, and they didn't veer from it. And I know they're not going to because they've already gone to be with the Lord. I'm not saying that there are not a lot of great people out right now that are really striving to carry the true gospel message. There are. But because we've got such an epidemic of notoriety and fame, corrupting even people that seem to be so solid and biblical that I think it does them a favor if we don't put so much focus on them. And it also protects us from being disappointed and led astray if we're reading people that have already gone to be with the Lord and, and, and have proven that their walk was, was pure based on the life that we read of them. And like I've gotten into before, I also find much greater depth of thinking and, and, and analyzing God's word before the advent of electricity quite often. So we'll get into, that's a whole nother story. But notice the stark contrast between the adoring worship of Mary and the selfish worldliness of Judas. Look at Psalm 11 too. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. That we see happening all the time. And the attacks will grow as we move forward in time now. Those that are truly seeking to be upright in heart, to truly worship the Lord, will have more arrows shot at them from those that are still trapped in the darkness. But you have to understand this. The Lord looks to the heart from where our sacrifices of worship spring. So your concern should not be with what's going on in the world. We need to address it. But our concern right now especially has to be, how is my personal walk with Christ? Am I growing in him? Am I, is he strengthening me? You see? Look at Psalm 51:17 and Isaiah 66, 2. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And Isaiah 66, 2, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Folks, I will tell you that God's word is so dishonored and abused by the majority of the modern church that it's horrifying to consider. When you look at how God's word is absolutely taken out of context, cast aside, picked apart to fit whatever agenda somebody wants to use it for. Adolf Hitler used scripture to justify many of the atrocities that he carried out because he would just find whatever he needed, rip it out of context, and paste it into whatever evil plan he was trying to get people to buy into. That's why so much of the German church followed along with him because they didn't take the time to discern what that evil man was trying to carry out. And along those lines, if you look at a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
who stood up against Hitler, he saw what was going on, made a stand against it, and paid with his life because he would not bow to the Nazi regime and would not give up his Christian faith to the Nazi regime and was hung for it. One of his best friends after Dietrich was killed and was hung, I believe he said it at his funeral. He said, Dietrich was a child before God, but a giant among men. And that's a lesson that we have to learn here. Instead of striving to appear to be a giant among men and striving for fame and notoriety in this massive ministry, consider that often the humble before God become giants among men. And when you read guys like Spurgeon and you read guys like Augustine and you read guys like Calvin, and these other amazing men that understood doctrine so deeply, the one thing you learn about when you read about them is that they were so humble and childlike before God, and that's why they had such power in the work that they did. So if you want to be truly powerful in ministry, and like I said, every Christian is in ministry, humble yourself before God, be a child before him, make your concern true, heartfelt worship of the Lord. And he will open those doors for you as they should be opened in the right way. Look at John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You can't worship the Lord if you're in lies, if you're of the world. You worship him in spirit and in truth. Mary's outward display of worship is a picture of the worship that we should pour out on the Lord from our heart. She gives us an example of how we should see ourselves in worship of the Lord. You see, this is so contrary because what do we have so much in the modern age and in the modern church? Humanism, where everything is based on humanistic needs. We've got to address depression. We've got to address addiction. We've got to address uh, these psychological issues people have. Whatever it is, everything seems to be looked at from a humanistic perspective, but contrast that if you look at things from the perspective of how does this worship and glorify the Lord. If you start to look at things that way, what you realize is these humanistic issues that people obsess over, they go away. And I can tell you that from my own experience. When I was in the recovery thing, that's the whole recovery industry is built on humanism. And that's why it fails so miserably. I just had somebody send me a message that, that uh, follows the recovery reformation industry that I run. And they said that they've been in, in, you know, in, in, in counseling for years for drug and rehab. Now they're a Christian. And they said that the, the success rate in secular drug and rehab is far below 1% over time. Why? Because they're not addressing the issue. If you understand that the issue is sin, the answer to sin is the gospel, and the way to live your life once you've come to Christ through the gospel is an adoring worship of him and in gratitude. All that stuff that you think you got to deal with in the recovery industry just goes away. It seems absurd. That's what recovery reformation, the whole ministry is about. So now after Judas insults Mary basically saying, why is she wasting this expensive perfume that we could have sold for so much money and given to the poor? Jesus responds in verses seven through nine. And he says, Jesus said to her, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Jesus tells Lazarus, leave her alone so that she may keep her for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary's worship was pure. It was from the heart and it was led by the Holy Spirit. She was not aware that Jesus's body would soon be buried. But he says in verse eight, for the poor you will always have with you. Mary's worshipful anointing of Christ's body for burial was a one-time act because he has risen and his body is now glorified. So that will never need to take place again because he lives now in his glorified, perfected human body. The same spirit of worship and adoration is now carried out by believers by his church. We need to emulate that type of worship that Mary gave us such a perfect example of. Look at James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Think of how complicated we have made religion. And this is how simple James explains it to us. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's such a profound verse because it shows us that we are to care for those that we can care for. And it also talks about the only way you're going to keep yourself unstained from the world is how? Abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, studying the Christian faith, studying the person and work of Christ. So there's so much in such a simple little verse there. And then look at Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now there's a huge lesson here if you're in ministry. Notice Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And I think it's fair to say, we could, we could say my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. But who's he referring to here? He's referring to those that are his, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, should we help unbelievers if we can? Absolutely. But what I think we see here is we have got to place, we've got to understand that there is a priority in the life of Christians, and that priority is caring for our brothers and sisters in the Lord above all else and before anything else. Very important lesson to understand. When so many churches and ministries put so many, so much money and resources into sending people somewhere in the world to do some kind of supposedly good work, but they don't preach the gospel and they don't even know if the people they're helping are Christians or not. 
care for the church, care for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and the gospel will reach those that are lost automatically. It will spring from that. But I've, you've got to pay attention to that wording. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You cannot care for Christ if you're not caring for his body and his church of true believers is his body. Very important lesson for us to understand there. And in verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this is a fascinating verse. Who does Lazarus prefigure or represent? Christian believers, those in Christ. So they came to see this person who had been raised from the dead. So what that teaches us is that our new life in Christ should be visible to the world. You should be so transformed in Christ if you're a sinner lost in the world and you are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, you come to place your faith in Christ, you should be so transformed that the world is drawn to you to see what happened. Why are they so different? Why are, is he or she? They're not even the same person. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There are so many nowadays that are obsessed with wanting to see miracles. I spoke to a gentleman a few years ago who was just trapped in the new apostolic reformation movement and just enthralled with all this garbage that, that churches like Bethel put out. He said, I just want to see a miracle. I'm so anxious. I just, I just want to see a miracle. And I said, dude, I'm right here. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I was lost on a road to condemnation. Dead. And Christ, and I was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. And now I get to serve him and walk in newness of life. I'm a new creation. That's not arrogance. Any believer should be able to say that to someone. If you want to see a miracle, here I am. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. Now I'm alive. I'm a new creation in Christ. You see? That is the greatest miracle you could ever want to witness. And so many people don't even realize that. It's just shocking. So these people came to see Lazarus. This, this guy was dead. Now he's alive. They want to see him, and they want to see this man who raised him from the dead. So he's getting so much attention, and so many people want to learn about this, that in verses 10 and 11, it says, So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What do we see happening in America right now? Our government has... It's been taken over for a long time, but it's becoming obvious right now. Just in the last week, there are reports that a couple different people in Congress outright denied that God had any voice in American government. And I haven't verified those things yet, but I've had people tell me about it. And I don't doubt it. But my point is, the evil forces that are in control of America and much of the world right now are doing exactly what we see here. They are the chief priests planning to put 
the Lazaruses, those that have been raised from the dead in Christ, to death as well. And they're starting with the message that we proclaim. They're trying to kill that message. Why? Because on account of us, many of the Jews, the unbelievers, those in the world, are going away from the world and believing in Christ. So Satan working through these evil forces is trying to do exactly what we saw happening here in John 12, 10 and 11. This is why it's so important to understand that tribulation takes place now, and it's been taking place since the beginning of the church. This is the tribulation that we're in. It's been going on. That's why my message a couple weeks ago was tribulation and then victory. As Lazarus is a picture of the dead sinner raised to life as a new creation in Jesus Christ, so he is a picture of the believer, the follower of Christ in this world. Look at John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christ warned us of these things before he went to the cross. The true church, true believers stand in opposition to and are hated by the world. One of the glaring red flags of false teachings is worldly praise and acceptance. It's how you can one of the easiest ways to spot a false teaching. And understand that the world will stop at nothing to put an end to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to depress Christians. I'm not trying to bum them out. This is one of the most fascinating times to be alive in Christian history. Things are becoming so clear. There's so much, it's so much easier to see good versus evil right now. Because evil is just rearing its ugly head and it's becoming so blatant. I mean, just look at the ridiculous things that are going on in our country. They don't even make sense. It's just how evil manifests, but it makes it so much more of an opportunity and a blessing for us to share the gospel in the midst of so much sinister, insane, chaotic evil. So remember this, if, if you get weighed down with what's going on in the world, we've got to push back against these things. We've got to make a stand. Christians have got to get some guts and realize Humble yourself before God, be a child before your father, and then go out into the world and be a giant in his name and make a stand for him. And while you're doing that, remember Romans 8, 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Folks, we've already got the victory in Christ. So as you worship, I just sort of want you to think about these things. And this is not an, not an exhaustive list. I just thought about this right before I started broadcasting today. Worship Christ as your Savior, as your King, as your priest as your brother, as your friend, as your father, as your sustainer, your provider, your comforter, your healer, your teacher, your master, and your guide. And like I said, that's not an exhaustive list. 
think about all the ways you can worship the Lord. You could pick one of those and spend a week worshiping the Lord from that heart, from that position of your heart, you see, and your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for your word, the message of the gospel. And Lord, I ask that in these uh, crazy and insane and chaotic times that you would bless us with peace and calm and that the world would see that and want to know what it is that enables us to smile and to shine brightly with your love in the midst of so much hatred and darkness. Lord, uh, guide our steps this coming week, open doors of opportunity for the gospel, and help us to serve you more boldly and courageously and confidently. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for watching today, you guys. Um, we need all the help we can get. Like I've talked about, the ministry is growing. We've got a lot of opportunities that we want to pursue, uh, but ministry requires people to support us. Um, some An analogy that I've used in the past is when you're in ministry, it's like going into a dark well to reach those that are trapped in the bottom of it, and we need people to hold the ropes. And those that support this ministry and make the commitment to help us each month um, are helping us by holding the ropes so we can go in and do the work that needs to be done. Um, we very much feel the call to uh, begin a pastoral or a biblical training school at my friend's church in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, he's already got a facility in place. It's a great opportunity for us. And so we've sort of changed our headquarters location because the Lord has made this change uh, the need for this change obvious to us. So we're still, we have a lot of people that we're reaching in Kenya, but we've decided to make this change for various reasons. And so far the Lord is blessing it. So I've already been sending them teaching materials each week and we are close to making a, a, a commitment. I don't like to say a deal, but committing to joining forces with another ministry. And once that is solidified, I'll share the news of that. And if that happens, they will be uh, joining forces with us to, um, help us uh, get this up and rolling. But that's a huge opportunity for us. So please pray about that. If you want to donate to the ministry, just go to the way, the letter r122.org, and you can do so. You can find us on YouTube at The Way Ministry Church. Eventually, we're going to be changing to another platform that has run into some snags. So right now, we're still on YouTube. You can subscribe to the podcast at christianpodcastcommunity.org. And there is a search bar on there. Just type in The Way Radio, and that'll take you right to my page for The Way Radio podcast. Thank you again for watching. We will be back here next week, same time, same place. God bless you guys.